Well, keep your Bibles open to uh, the passage that Megan read from the Gospel of Mark. And I want to start this morning by telling you a, a short story um, about a man named St. Augustine. Now, if you're a Floridian, you know that St. Augustine is a place uh, on the north <laughs> shore of Florida, but St. Augustine is a man who's in heaven, uh, who was a very important historical figure in church history for a lot of reasons. Some people have said outside of Jesus and the apostles, the inspired men who wrote the Bible, and Jesus who came and, and sacrificed for our sin, he's one of the most important figures in church history who shaped and formed the way that we think in the West. Um, Christian History Magazine said, after Jesus and, and, and Paul, St. Augustine of Hippo is the most influential figure in the history of Christianity. But you may not know his story. As a young man, he had a serious struggle with lust. Serious struggle. And he was actually enslaved to sex. As a young man, he was 17 years old. He was very intelligent. Very intelligent. He had a very sharp mind. His mom and dad knew. He had already distinguished himself as a deep thinker who could contend with the smartest young people uh, where he grew up. And so at 17 years old, they decided to send him up to Carthage in Africa to get educated. And when he arrived there, all alone, a young man, uh, hormones raging, single, handsome, clever, smart, funny, um, he said that he found the city of Carthage to be a hissing cauldron of lust for him. He was away from his mom, he was away from his dad, he was away from every authority in his life, and it didn't go well for him. Now, if you know anything about St. Augustine, you know he, his most famous book that he ever wrote was called Confessions. And there was never, a book like that had never been written up to that point, and it took the world by storm because he's brutally, candidly, and frankly honest in that book about all his struggles leading up to his conversion to, conversion to Christ, all the struggles that he had. So he's 17 years old, he's in a big city, he has no authority, and he's got a problem with lust. So he found a concubine. He got her pregnant. They had a child together. He lived with her for 10 years, but he continually had other mistresses on the side. I know this is, you're thinking, why aren't we talking about that, this in church? Because this is real life. This is important. Well, he finally moved to Milan, where he f fell under the powerful preaching of a pastor named Bishop Ambrose. And two worlds and two authorities started to collide within St. Augustine, some of you can identify with this when you came to Christ. There's this war. There's this internal conflict. There were two authorities in his life at play. God's authority, knowing what God said about his body, about sexuality, about lust, and at the same time, believing that he wanted to be happy. He liked his lust. He liked his life just the way it was, but he was tormented when he came under preaching. So he was at war with himself. Um, his lifestyle broke his mother's heart, but his dad thought it was funny. So you can imagine, he's in two worlds ultimately, with his parents, with God, with himself. And he is, is famously known in that book, Confessions, to have prayed, Lord, give me chastity, which means purity, but not yet. Can, can anybody in here identify with that? Lord, make me pure, but not yet. I still want to hold on to this. I want to have one foot here under your authority and one foot here under my own authority. Well, he feared giving up his sexual freedom. It scared him. It represented a threat. Now, what I appreciate him is this was the first century of Christianity. This was like the year 380. 
He was so brutally honest. It scared him to think of giving up his sexual deviancy because he liked it. He liked the, the freedom that he had and the pleasure that he could have on his own terms. And he wrote about it. He said this in the book Confessions. He said, I love the happy life, but I feared to find it in your presence, O God. And so I fled from it, even as I sought it. I thought that I would be too wretched if I were kept from a woman's arms. Do you appreciate his candidy, candid uh, confession? This is, uh, that's St. Augustine, that's his book. So uh, he was in torment, but he began to see, as he came under that powerful preaching, that what he stood to gain by being a follower of Jesus was much greater than what he stood to lose. And this is what he said. I turn and turn again upon my back and sides and belly. He's comparing this wrestling with when you're trying to sleep and you can't quite get in the right position. <laughs> Anybody identify with that? He said, I turn and turn again upon my back and sides and belly, but all the places were too hard to it. For you, God, alone are my true rest. So he's at war with himself. In late August in the year 386, Augustine was almost 32 years old, and he was with his best friend, Alypius, in Milan. And they were in a garden, and they were talking about lust, sex, holiness, and Christianity. And he writes in his book, he came under great conviction, and he ran away in this garden to be alone with God. And this is what he said. He says, I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome by violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair and hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees. I flung myself down beneath a fig tree and gave way to the tears which now streamed from my eyes. In my misery, I kept crying. How long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not now? Why not make an end of my ugly sins at this moment? And then he says he heard the voice of a child. Many of you have read this. It's a very dramatic conversion. He heard the voice of a child saying in his language, take up and read, take up and read. And he thought, is that a game? Are children nearby playing a game? And he couldn't see anybody, but he took it as a divine command from God. And so he picked up a copy of the epistles of St. Paul, the apostle. And you should never do this, by the way, but he played, you know, Bible roulette. <laughs> he just spun the Bible and put his finger down. And he said, I'm going to read whatever verse my finger lands on. And you know what verse it was? It was Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. And it said this. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to, gratis, to gratify its desires. He read that and his heart was pierced and that was it. The fight was over for him. God's word was so powerful it converted him. And this is what he wrote. I had no wish to read more and no need to do so. For in an instant, as I came to the end of the sentence, it was as though the light of confidence flooded into my heart and all the darkness of doubt was dispelled. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, you who outshine all light, you who surpass all honor. O oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Isn't that amazing? Now, why do I read that? Why am I opening my sermon on a Sunday morning with that story? Because 
it's interesting to me the incredible intellectual force that St. Augustine was. Very deep and profound philosopher, existentialist, and theologian. Do you know the barrier to him coming to Christ and fully, fully surrendering himself to Jesus? It wasn't that he just couldn't quite get over this hurdle of Jonah being swallowed by a whale and kept alive for three days. It wasn't that. It wasn't Jesus speaking the universe into existence by his very word. It wasn't that. It wasn't Moses plaguing Egypt with ten plagues or any of those miracles that you read in the Old Testament. It wasn't Jesus being born a virgin, which is miraculous. It wasn't Jesus walking on water or even Jesus being raised from the dead. Do you know what it was? It was giving up his sexual freedom. It wasn't the miracles, it was the morals that were the barrier to him. And I have found, as a church planner, as a Christian, as a pastor, I encounter people all the time. That's their barrier too. And not just unbelievers. I meet and talk with a lot of Christians, and they had the same kinds of fears that St. Augustine had, fully surrendering their life to the Lordship of Christ. That's a problem to them. It represents a threat, just like it did them. And this passage is really... Uh, in Mark's gospel, it's, it's really all about that. In fact, that's our outline for this morning. The message is, who do you think you are? And our outline's really simple. Number one, we all question God's authority. Because Augustine was questioning God's authority. Who gave you the right to tell me what to do with my body? Have you ever thought that? Yes, you have. Come on, be honest. Maybe you still do. Who does he think he is? Get your laws off my body. Get off my lawn, God. Get your finger out of my pie or out of my face. So that's point number one. We all question God's authority. Number two, we need to question our questioning of his authority. <laughs> That'll make sense to you when we get there. Number three, count his cost. So that's our outline for this morning. And if you <clears throat> followed along in the text, you know that this passage in Mark's gospel, this launches a whole bunch of conflicts between Jesus and the religious authorities of his day. Now, let's just Pause the, hit the pause button right there. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. He's teaching scripture. And he has, is met with this incredible and hostile opposition from the religious people, the scribes, the Pharisees. Sometimes it's the Sadducees and the elders. Now, guys, we forget this. We're so accustomed and familiar with the Bible. This, this is scandalous. This ought to blow us away. Who would you expect to oppose Jesus? Tax collectors, harlots, abortion doctors. I mean, come on. Who would you expect to oppose Jesus and be angry with him and shake their fists and say, who do you think you are? But who, who did? The religious people. Now listen, <laughs> I, wanna, I, I don't want this to be a lecture. I've heard sermons that you, know, you leave with all this information about who the scribes were, who the Pharisees were, who Jesus was, what was going on, and you leave with a, a lot of data in your head, but no application. And you're thinking... So what? What in the world has that got to do with me? Let me tell you what this has to do with us and you and me. We're just like those people sometimes. Now, if you don't own up to that, I'm going to try to prove it to you in this message, okay? All of us at one point or another question the authority of Christ in and over our life. We all do. We're blind to it sometimes. We need the pastor's help to see where it is so that we can relinquish it like Augustine did and said, you're Lord, Jesus is Lord. But we're all just like them. They were religious and they opposed Jesus. He made them angry. They were threatened. They felt threatened with him. So let me say first of all that Jesus should make us question everything we believe in. Do you know why? 
Because Jesus was not just a, the next religious figure, religious figure down the line that came and said, oh, shucks, I don't know. Gee, what do you guys think? He didn't talk like that. He didn't live like that. That wasn't his ministry. Jesus came with very clear and commanding authority. Everyone recognized it. Even his enemies recognized it. He taught with authority. You know, whenever they came to arrest Jesus, you know what the soldiers came back and said without Jesus? They were, they were sent to get Jesus, and they came back empty-handed, and the Pharisees were like, what's up, dudes? Where's Jesus? And they said, no man ever spoke like this man. There was something about the way he taught, and we threw our weapons down and we ran. We, we can't explain it. He just has authority. Everyone said that. When he preached his first and greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, do you know what the people said? They were blown away. They use a Greek word. I'm trying to remember what it is. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. Explosso, I think. Yeah. They were struck out of their minds by his teaching. It blew. They were beside themselves is what it means in Greek. And they said, no man ever spoke like this man with what? Authority. He didn't quote rabbis and scribes. He came and said, truly, I say to you. He didn't need to quote anybody else. He's the highest authority, right? He said things like, um, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the light of the world. He said, you've heard it's been said, but I say to you. Jesus talked about when the end of the world comes and people are standing in the presence of God, and he said something like, truly, truly, you will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? I'm the Lord. I'm God. I'm the Messiah. So he taught with authority. He cast out demons with authority. He performed miracles with authority. You couldn't question that. What you could do is defy it and say, but where did you get it? What right do you have to do these things and to say these things? It's, it's undisputable that Jesus had authority. He even said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we can't question that God and Jesus had authority and still do. But we can be honest and say, I don't always like it. I don't always like their authority. Now listen, I want, I want to cast a really wide net this morning, and I want to catch everybody. So I want, to, I want to take the 30,000 foot view and then zoom back in to what was going on there. You know, the authority that Jesus exercised is just a bigger picture of the authority that God has. And I'm talking about God's sovereignty. He sits, the Bible says, enthroned above the circle of the earth, and all of its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Some people that comfort, some people don't like that. Grasshopper, you know, we're, you mean like we're insects? That's what Isaiah 40 says. It just means no, uh, God's king, and we're his subjects. And that's a good confession and acknowledgement to make, that he is sovereign over all. Psalm uh, chapter 29 verse 10 says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And water and floods in the Bible meant chaos. So this world, you look around, isn't the world restless right now? Isn't, wouldn't you agree there's death, there's hate, there's cruelty, there's injustice? Politically, socially, spiritually, psychologically, people are taking their own life. We're building bombs instead of hospitals. It's crazy. It's chaos everywhere. And it's tempting to look at the world and say, who authorized this? Because I'd like to meet them and speak a piece of my mind to them. You ever thought that? Who's in charge of this clattering train, as Winston Churchill said? The wars, the injustices, and it, it hits closer to home, right? The sickness, the chronic sickness that you have. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. He's king, 
He's on his throne, and that's not ever going to change. And that means all the chaos and disorder in the world, ultimately, we look to God and we shake our fist and say, I don't like this. I don't like the way my life is, and you're responsible. I don't like my marriage that I feel stuck and trapped in. I don't like the fact that I can't control my kids. I don't like the sickness that you gave me. I don't like living paycheck to paycheck. Am I hitting anybody this morning? We all think that way, don't we? I mean, if you were on a commercial airline flight, a long one, and you were flying first class, and you're bumping and shaking, and the pilot plunges the plane, and then he zooms up, and hard left, and hard right, and drinks, and your food spills everywhere, and then you make a crash landing, wouldn't you want to meet the pilot (laughs) and say, can I just talk to you, bro? What the heck? Where's your credentials? Where did you get your pilot's license? In a bubblegum machine? You know, that's what they're saying to Jesus. That's what they're saying. He's in the temple. He's teaching. He's rearranging the furniture. Do you remember this? You remember what sparked this? He walked in. He didn't like what he saw. He he flipped tables. This is the meek, mild Jesus. Gentle little baby Jesus that we will never let grow up. He's flipping tables over. Chasing people around. Throwing coins on the floor. And he says, don't make my father's house a den of thieves. They don't like it. So the very next day, he's teaching. They interrupt him, and you know what they say? Where did you get the authority to do these things? Just like we would say to the pilot, who do you think you are, bro? (laughs) You can't come into my house. This is our temple. We're the Pharisees. (laughs) You can't come in here and start rearranging our life. And we do the same thing. Christians do. Just admit it. The Bible, every passage you read is trying to help you see this is a problem that we have as Christians. Who gave you the right to do this, God? You can't do this to me. It's not just the things that he does, okay? It's the things that he says. Like Augustine. Augustine knew everything Jesus in the Bible ever said about sex and purity. And he didn't like it. Because it crimped his freedom. It crimped his style. But something's got to go. Either your authority has got to be undermined or the authority of Jesus has got to be called into question. And that's what this is really about. This happens all the time. My best friend from high school called me the other day. He lost his dad last year. Unexpectedly, in great health, had a case of pneumonia, went to the doctor, had to go to the ER. And this is a very long story. I'll make it short. Um... He got some very bad advice from a medical professional that told him, you're fine, go home, come back in the morning. Well, he didn't wake up in the morning. He died. And my friend's just heartbroken, wasn't ready to lose his dad, had no time to prepare. Some of you have been here too, with a parent or a son or something, a daughter. And he said, he's still picking up the pieces. Well, last week he called me and he said, man, I wish you were here. And I said, what's going on? He said, my father-in-law just took his life. He said, I don't get it. I just don't get it. Aren't we all like that sometimes, though? He's being friendly and nice about it, but it's like, God, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Who gave you the right to take my father-in-law to have to sit down with my 8-year-old and my 10-year-old and tell them, hey, your other grandpa died? Self-inflicted gunshot wound. It's it's home for all of us. There's, There's ways and there's situations we question God's authority. All of us do. 
And here is the second point. So, uh, I mean, let's, let's get into the passage because this is, I do preach from the Bible. <laughs> um, Mark eleven twenty seven. that's where it starts. You know, one of the other versions of this, Luke has a version of this, same episode, different, different perspective. Matthew has a, a story about this. In Matthew and Luke's version, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And they accost him. They interrupt his teaching. Um, in Mark's version, I think he's just in the temple. He's walking in the temple, verse 27. The chief priest and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Now check this out. Verse 29. How does Jesus respond to our questioning his authority? Because this is scandalous too. You know, all the things he could have said, who in the world do you think you are? I mean, he could have squashed them like a bug, right? God could. But look what Jesus does. This is, if, you, if you're not careful here, you will miss the love and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. And this is, this is point two. You've got to look behind your questioning. We question God's authority. We challenge his authority. Sometimes in hostility as unbelievers. Sometimes in confusion and distress as believers. And Jesus is so gracious and patient and long-suffering with us. You know what he says? He says, you've you got to be honest with yourself here. There's a, there's, a, there's a very good and deep and profound reason why you're questioning my authority, and I'm going to help you see it. But some people don't want to have that conversation. Look what Jesus does here. Verse 29. He says, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. You're going to question me? I'm going to question you. I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Don't you love that Jesus is not going to be put in the dock? <laughs> He's not going to be put on trial. He's going to help these confused religious leaders, leaders who are hostile to see what lies underneath their protest and their challenge and their question. And if, if you keep reading, look here. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven... He will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, see, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know, which is a flat-out lie. And then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's making them face themselves. You know, a lot of people talk about what makes you a Christian? What is it that has to happen for you to be a Christian? Now listen very carefully to me this morning because a lot of Christians are confused about this. How do you become a Christian? What has to happen? Some people say you've got to be really, really dedicated and earnest and disciplined and hardworking, right? And I understand what they're saying. They're talking about the fruits of salvation, but you're talking, if, if that's your answer for what makes you a Christian, you're introducing a system of works into the equation. In other words, you've got to be good enough, work hard enough, be disciplined enough, and then God will say, okay, I'll let you in now. And that's dangerous and that's heretical. But I will say this. Uh, of course, the answer is you have to believe, right? You have to believe the good news and transfer your faith and your trust from yourself to Jesus. And you're in the kingdom. But what that entails is this. It's not about being earnest or disciplined or hardworking, but it is about this. It's about being honest. You've got to face yourself. 
you have got to confront the ugliness and the hideousness of what lies underneath. And until you do that, you're going to stay far from the kingdom, the Bible teaches, right? And Jesus is helping these religious leaders and us see, look, you've got to dig and you've got to look at what's underneath your protest and your fist shaking at Jesus. And you know what it was for these men? They were afraid. Now, let me explain this with some context. The baptism of John, it sounds like a weird question, doesn't it? I'll tell you where I got this authority, but you've got to answer my question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And what Jesus is saying is this. You remember that guy that got his head cut off three years ago? He was my forerunner. He was my, he was my public relations guy. John the, the Baptist announced the coming of the Messiah. He said, there is one who is coming who is greater than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to unstrap. And John said, I must decrease, but he must what? Increase. And when Jesus came to be baptized by John, what did John say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus is saying, John's ministry, his preaching of repentance and faith, his baptism of repentance, was it authorized by God? Or was he on his own authority? And they, they form a huddle. And they're saying, now look guys, we got to ask ourselves, is answering this question truthfully going to work for us? Right? Now, isn't that what we do all the time? Isn't that what we do all the time? This is what Jesus says in his word. We know it's true. We know it's right. It makes sense. So we got to huddle and talk about this. Is this going to work for us? Is Jesus' teaching on money? and sex, and marriage, is it going to work for us? Instead of asking, is it true? Guys, go deep with me here. Put on the scuba gear, okay? That's where we all start with, is this going to be practical and easy and comfortable for me? Right? C.S. Lewis once said, if you're looking for Christianity uh, to be comfortable, then I highly unrecommend it. Something to that effect. I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said. The wrong question is, will this work for me? And that's where they started. In one, in one version of this, in Matthew, they said, if we say that John's authority was from himself, they'll stone us. Because the one thing that everybody in Jerusalem accepted was that John was a prophet. He was the greatest man that ever lived apart from Christ, right? He had great power, even though he never performed any miracles. It was just the preaching of repentance and faith. There was something about him, an anointing, a power. The Spirit of God was upon him. And so, the starting place for the religious leaders and so many times for us is, will this work for me? I know what Jesus says about marriage, but will this work for me? I know what Jesus says about purity, but will this work for me? I know the exclusive claims that Jesus makes about his being the only way. No man comes to the Father except through me, but will that work for me? Because there's other things I believe in life that I want to kind of hold on to, right? There's this threat. So that's, we got to question our questioning. There's always lying beneath the surface, we got to dig some type of irrational, illogical fear that's keeping us from acknowledging the truth. It was true of them, and it's true of us. And also, you remember what happened at the baptism, this divine voice came down. When Jesus was baptized by John, a divine voice came down for everyone to hear. What did it say? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So, to acknowledge that John the Baptist's ministry and baptism 
was from God was to acknowledge that Jesus was from God because John endorsed Jesus. Are y'all tracking with me? Am I making sense? They knew if they answer that question truthfully, it's going to pose a threat to them. And these are religious leaders, and they wouldn't answer. And this is what Jesus said, that I'm not going to play your game. Until you're ready to confront yourself, until you're ready to ask yourself hard questions, I'm not going to play your game. And Jesus says the same thing to us. There's always something, there's always something beneath the protest, always. We're always afraid of what truly following Christ might mean for us socially, culturally, relationally, sexually, and financially. I remember this. I was a college pastor for five years before I went to seminary. Should have been the other way around, right? I made a lot of mistakes, hurt a lot of people, had to apologize and ask forgiveness for a lot of things. I remember one of the conflicts I faced on a consistent basis, and Sarah, Sarah can attest to this, was people that had grown up in the church, they acknowledged and affirmed all the Christian doctrines and teachings as true, and then they would go off to college and meet somebody that they were attracted to and had chemistry with, whatever that means, right, who was an unbeliever. And they were conflicted. They were like Augustine. Maybe not sleeping with them, but saying, you know what? I know what God says about being unequally yoked. I know the whole teaching about what fellowship can light have with darkness, but I don't want to be alone. Come on, church. <laughs> at five years of my life, I was in a meeting at least once a month with parents and with the students and saying, look, guys, I'm, don't shoot the messenger. I'm here to tell you that God's word says, says this. You will be miserable if you are in a marriage covenant with somebody who does not share a central part of your worldview and faith, you're going to be miserable. God's not holding out on you. He's not try, trying to jam up your life and crimp your freedom. There's a very good reason why God says these things. But so often, they were like the religious leaders and they said, this teaching on marriage, if we say it's from God, we have to break up. <laughs> you, know, if we say, you understand what I'm saying? Will this work for me? And so often when they saw that this is not going to work for us, they said, thank you, Jesus, but no thank you. And off they went. And there's, there was always a story, if you trace the breadcrumbs, to misery, to misery. And not just that, but money and career. I, I, I actually, actually wrote, wrote down some things here. Um, this is what some Christians, I've heard some Christians even who are confused, make arguments like this, and maybe you can relate. Um, you can't tell me, Jesus can't tell me what to believe or what to refute. Jesus doesn't stand beside... This is me writing now. Jesus does not stand alongside equally any other religious figure. Nobody. You can't put Jesus and Buddha on the same grounds. You can't. You can't put Jesus and Muhammad on the same grounds. Jesus or, jo or Joseph Smith, anybody. He's not in the same room. He's not in the same category. Jesus made exclusive claims about himself that, that nobody else can hold a candle to. And so often people say... Um, well, no, I can, I can be a Christian and I can hold these views and I can also hold these views. Sarah and I were on vacation not too long ago and some really nicely dressed people came to our door and knocked on the door and wanted to offer us some literature uh, and they were posing as Christians and I took that literature and I read it with Sarah and they were saying that Jesus Christ is something less than God, right? That he was a created being. Nice people, very friendly, invited me to a gathering that they were having in the city but I'm sorry, that, it's either that authority 
or the Bible. One of them has to go. And some people just don't like that. They, they want to coexist. We can hold on to the, the authority of Jesus and hold on to all these other things. No, you can't. No, you can't. And there's a very good reason for that. So some people say that. Some people say, you can't, treat, you can't tell me how to treat my wife. What right does God have to tell me how to treat my spouse or to parent my children, right? Some people say, you can't tell me what to do with my body. This is my body. It's my life. It's my decision that carries over into pregnancy and all kinds of things. You can't tell me how to raise my kids. I can wear what I want. I can go where I want. I can do what I want. I can befriend who I want. I can marry whoever I want. I can divorce whoever I want. I can date whoever I want or sleep with whoever I want, man or woman. These are arguments that you're hearing more and more and more. You can't tell me what's an ethical or unethical business practice. You can't tell me what to do with my money, God. You can't even tell me that I'm supposed to regularly gather with people once a week for an hour or more and share their burdens and pray with them. What right does God have to tell me that? I hear Christians more and more saying those things making those arguments. And Jesus is saying, look underneath the surface. Why is it that you're challenging this? It's because you're afraid and you feel threatened by them. It's always the case. Sex, finances, relationships. And to me, this is, this is where it hits home. See, these religious leaders, kind of like us, they were fine with Jesus out there doing miracles and teaching, raising people from the dead in Galilee and Judea, but Jesus, he gets closer. He walks into Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey. People are saying, Hosanna God. Uh-oh, they're feeling a little bit annoyed. They're a little bit irritated by this. He's in their city now, right? But all is good, all is fine. But then, then Jesus goes into the temple. <laughs> do you remember the stories? We're in Mark's gospel. What did Jesus do in the temple? We talked about it earlier. He starts rearranging their furniture. Well, that's their house, Right? I think, aren't we the same way? We're okay with Jesus as long as he's on the outskirts. Just stay, Jesus, you keep to your things and I'll keep to mine. You're out in Galilee, you're out in Capernaum, and you're in Judea, that's fine. But then Jesus gets close to home. Then before you know it, Jesus is up in your kitchen. Now he's meddling. And you're not just annoyed anymore, you're, you're outraged. It's like, what right does he have? He's rearranging your furniture. If somebody's rearranging your furniture, it's their house, Right? Jesus gets in our kitchen. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us too much to let things stay the way they are. This is like the disruptive witness of the Holy Spirit. That's a good thing that's, that we should welcome. So often we want a consultant. We don't want a king. We say, I am my own. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the master of my fate. And Jesus says, get real. <laughs> get real with me. How's that working out for you? <laughs> Reach up on top of your head and feel that crown that you're wearing. How's that working out for you? C.S. Lewis said this once. He said, if you reach for earth, um, you get heaven nor the earth. If you reach for heaven, you get both. Right? It's true. It's true. J. Oswald Chambers said this. He said, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't good. That's what we're afraid of, that God is going to hold out on us. He's going to hold out on us. He's going to pass us by. I mean, wasn't that the lie that plunged humanity into sin? The devil, what did he say? The serpent. 
Has God really said you can't eat from that little bitty tree over there? That's such a little tree. The fruit is so good. I, w- I would have liked to have been there just to watch, okay? Because <laughs> I would have eaten the whole tree and you would have too, right? My, my kids have made that argument. That's not fair, Daddy. I wasn't there. I wouldn't have eaten the apple. I'm like, honey, you would have eaten the whole cotton-picking tree. Be quiet, you know. But I would have liked to have been there and see how Satan enticed them. Oh, that's the best fruit in the garden. What did God say about that? Oh, he said, you can't eat it. You can have all this other stuff. The nectarines and the pears or whatever it was. Those are the pomegranates. I don't know what it was. We don't know what fruit it was. But it was delightful to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, right? And they bought the lie. He said, God is holding out on you. He's holding out on you. He's all law. I'm all love. And he still tells that lie today to Christians and we still believe it and we question his authority. Who gave you the right? to do these things and to say these things and get up in my kitchen and rearrange my furniture. We don't like it. We don't like it. And God, Jesus, calls us to question, why do you not like it? What's underneath? Um, C.S. Lewis said this, talking about this, com- this conviction. He says, nothing that you have not given away, nothing that you've not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. And he's talking about the, the cost of discipleship there and the lordship of Christ. You know, that's when we talk about the confession of the early Christians, you know, the irreducible minimum confession. This was before there was any creeds, catechisms, or confessions. Do you know what one would say to let people know that he belonged to Jesus? You know what they'd say? Jesus is what? Lord. Jesus is Lord. Full Lordship. He is my authority. He is wearing the crown over my life. And he's a good king. And he's a much better king than I ever was. Caesar's not Lord. And I'm not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And hallelujah. Because if he wasn't, my life would be a wreck. This is the third and final point, and it'll be fast, okay? The last and final point is um, count his cost. And there's a play on words there. So often we're like, count, count our cost. And yeah, it is painful. Like Augustine, the wrestling, to give up, you know, your sexual freedom. And by the way, he's not the only person that ever happened to. Uh, Aldous Huxley, the famous atheist, he wrote, a, he wrote a book, basically a confession of an atheist. And in that book, he said, it, it wasn't intellectual barriers that kept me from Jesus. It was, I wanted to maintain my sexual freedom. Same thing, except he never converted. Augustine did. It's, it's fear of relinquishing control. That's what keeps people so, so often out of the kingdom or from just fully experiencing the joy and the freedom of the pleasure of Christ. They think, Jesus is coming to enslave me. But that's not what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? I have come so that they may have life, more abundant life. I've come to set the captives free and to proclaim the year of liberty, the acceptable year of the Lord. That's what he came to do. But so many people think he came bringing handcuffs. He came bringing boat cutters, guys. That's why Jesus came. He didn't come to imprison you. He came to set you free. We're already enslaved apart from Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, I will ask you a question. How's this freedom that you want to maintain working out for you? And why are you so afraid of relinquishing it? So the final thing is count his cost, and, it, and it's this. 
this authority that Jesus possesses, people are so scared he's going to imprison them, but what did Jesus do with this authority? How did Jesus use his authority? Did he oppress us and, and become a tyrant and abuse us and exploit us and hurt us? It's amazing to me when you want to have an intellectual conversation with people that have objections to the claims of Christianity. They're not willing to really look. How did Jesus use his power? Always to benefit people. No miracle he ever performed was to show off. I mean, honestly, this sounds irreverent. If I was Jesus, <laughs> this sounds really irreverent. If I was Jesus, I would have at least flown around Jerusalem a few laps and said, ta-da, look. You know, right? He didn't. Every, every act of power he ever exercised was to help people. To help people who were oppressed, who were abused, who were victims of a false system of religion that they were under for decades, for millennial, some of them. So how did Jesus use his authority? You know what he said he came to do? He said in 1 John, I have come to destroy the works of the devil. The devil came to rob, steal, kill, and deceive. And Jesus says, I'm going to use my authority to destroy the enemy. You know what else he did? This is really interesting. There's another version of this story in the very beginning of his ministry. He cleansed the temple twice, in the beginning of his ministry and the end of the ministry. We just read about the very end. But in the beginning, in John chapter 2, Jesus cleansed the temple. And the same religious figures came up and got in his grill, right? They got in his personal space. And they said, what sign do you show us for this authority that you're exercising? And do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 2? He said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. Do you remember that? That's a strange answer. It's not like this answer. It's a strange answer. He says, here's the sign of my authority. You want to know how I have authority or why I have authority? Tear down this temple, destroy it, and I'll build it up in three days. And the Bible says he was talking about what? His body, not the physical temple that it had taken decades to build. He was talking about his body. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He says, if you really want to know how I'm going to use my authority, what I'm going to do with my authority, I will show you. He's talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. What did Jesus ultimately use his authority for, with, and for? To redeem us. To redeem us. He used his authority to conquer sin, to conquer death, to conquer hell. And to set the captives free, that's what he used it for. That's the most amazing thing that a lot of people miss. They never will engage in that portion of the conversation. So the, the, the first point is we all question God's authority. The second point is you should always question your questioning of his authority. Dig underneath. And the third point is count his cost. What did it cost Jesus to possess this authority and to use it? It cost him his life. He didn't come to imprison you. Giving up control is, is, is costing him, not you, right? And that's the claims that Christ made. And look, this is, if I have raised some questions in this sermon that I haven't answered, come back, because this is the beginning of seven conflicts that Jesus had with religious leaders in the temple, in their territory, in their kitchen. Uh, he's about to tear a par tell a parable after this, and we're going to talk about all these things for the next four or five weeks, okay?